Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. How can we unlock the champion in ourselves? How can we optimize human performance mentally, emotionally, and physically? This is the quest of all peak performers. And my guest today is not only a peak performer himself, but is a sought-after expert in self-transformation and personal mastery. Shamal Balapji is a South African sports scientist and performance coach. He's the author of five books on sports science and motivation, a TEDx speaker, and Men's Health Trainer of the Year. He has two decades of on-field experience with Olympians and championship-winning teams, works with athletes and executives to unlock their potential mentally, physically, and emotionally. He has also spent three years of his life as a monk, and in his new book, Breathe, Believe, and Balance, he shares his combined knowledge and experience from the worlds of science, spirituality, and psychology. And his dream is to touch the lives of a million children by making sports an equal opportunity platform devoid of politics, religion, race, gender, or socioeconomic basis. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Thank you so much for joining us on this Superhumanized podcast today. I'm thrilled you are guest. Thank you very much, Ariana. I'm super excited to be here and look forward to a really exciting conversation. Likewise. And where do I find you today? Are you in Mumbai? I'm currently in Mumbai. I have been here for the last year. And I think this is the only year in the last uh, two and a half decades that I've not traveled anywhere outside a country. So it's been quite an interesting experience. Yes, it certainly has globally been an interesting experience. And I'd love to dive in a little later in the conversation also how you have dealt with this, because of course you are a person with a very eclectic uh, background and have been you know, training your mind and body uh, via a variety of disciplines pretty much for most of your adult life. And so I'd love to hear how you have actually dealt with the current situation. I would like to first, though, dive into some of your backgrounds, uh, because you had a very interesting upbringing that also was very formative for your worldview and your life's trajectory, and also got you to doing what you're doing now. So please let us know how you actually became who you are, sports scientist, a psychologist, and also the high performance coach uh, that you are and that you're celebrated for being. So firstly, I have to have a disclaimer that everything happened by mistake. Nothing was engineered in the manner that it presents itself today. And I think that's probably the first lesson is that if you go about trying to engineer anything, uh, it's never going to work out in that way. Mm. So I grew up in South Africa and I'm of Indian origin. 
And I grew up in South Africa pre-apartheid. And for those people who don't know, apartheid was what's called institutionalized segregation of people of color, which means there were limited opportunities in education, in career, in sport, even in geographical locations. You could go to only certain schools, parks, beaches, whatsoever. And uh, I grew up in that environment. And I grew up very passionate about the game of cricket. And I played it at a significantly decent level. I was significantly decent at the game itself. And uh, I wasn't aware of the situation in the country. When I turned 18, I became a little bit more aware of how rife the apartheid was and how it impacted people of color because I grew up in a colored community as such. So, you know, I was surrounded with my own kind and we were... As long as I was the best amongst them, I realized and I thought, okay, shucks, I've got a chance here. And uh, only when you, when the floodgates are open, do you realize that, you know, those opportunities, even if you are the best amongst everyone else, there were laws of the country that prohibited opportunity. So the first thing I had to do was when I realized I can't play sport, being passionate about it, I wanted to really and truly study something that allowed me to stay in the sport. And I studied sports science. That was the only degree I knew of that would give me a career in sports. So I went and studied it. I was fortunate enough that the cricket team that I was with, the state cricket team, paid for all my education. So because I couldn't play, they threw me into the role of really a coach or a high-performance coach having a sports science background from very early on in my life, which was about 18 years old. But that Whilst it seemed like a, a silver lining to a situation, it presented a completely different problem. At the time, we had what was called a quota system in place, which means that opportunities for people of color were restricted to one person of color per national team in any quota sport. Mm. So in a population of 70% of people in the country, only one opportunity was given in the national team. But those quota systems did not exist for support staff and coaching staff, which means that I didn't have the benefit of that system, which means I was completely left out of the system as a coach. What discrimination actually does is it turns you against your own people. The few people who work hard, the few people who courageous and brave and who challenge the system, the system identifies you and then they make you the gatekeeper of that system. So you start keeping other people of color or other people like yourself out of the system without you even knowing it. That's what discrimination does. Did you back then actually realize that or was that a, did you come, came to that realization later when you were removed out of this system? No, I came to that realization after about two years of being in it. And that's when I put my foot down. And that's when I really moved into the temple because I realized that I was becoming a person I didn't recognize. I was being intolerant to people's pain who I knew were in pain. People who were in the same situation with me, going through the same circumstances as me, having the same struggles and pain as me. I was becoming ignorant and unempathetic to it. And then I realized that this can't go on and I have to do something else. I was very early. I was probably about 22, 23 at that stage. And I moved into the temple. Okay. And uh, in the ashram, uh, I started off very just spending a few days there, then a few days turned to a few weeks and then a few months. And I didn't plan to really spend as much time as I did. And it ended up becoming almost three and a half years that I was in there. So I realized that my sport environment in the temple 
physiologically was not going to help me there. And I started studying ancestral and Vedic wisdom. And what I realized was that Vedic wisdom speaks about the power of the mind and it connects the mind to the body. And the mind is really the gateway to unlock what is called super consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that was where my journey into deep psychology and subconscious programming started and ancestral wisdom. So I started peeling away the layers of Vedic science, understanding a lot of this. And I realized that if I'm going to go back into the real world, I'm going to need a degree. Okay. So I went and I started studying. I did a master's in clinical psychology initially. And I realized that psychology in the Western world really and truly diagnoses everything. They're looking at behavioral patterns. They're looking at diagnosis. But it's not really giving you an inroad into how to access altered states of consciousness. Remember, I'm talking back in 2000, when not too many people were talking about this. Okay, Right now, the field seems to be opening up. And I realized that spirituality and psychology could complement each other in this way. You know, psychology helps with a certain diagnosis. Spirituality helps with a different understanding of that. And the way I explain it is that if you look at an emotion, Right. And you look at someone being aware of an emotion, right? That is science. Science is psychology. If I'm asking you, what are you feeling right now? And you tell me, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling joy, then that is science, your awareness of that. How that came into being is really answered through spirituality. You know, Mm -hmm. how did that actually manifest? You know, awareness of something and the manifestation of something are completely different situations. And I realized that the complementary way in which we approach science and spirituality really truly dovetails at that point there. And then my journey went on from there. I spent three and a half years in there. I moved out of the temple around 2007 and moved to India to start training the Indian Olympic team again. I trained the Indian Olympic team 2008, 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games. I set up a business in here. I studied more deeper into psychology. And what was really interesting was I was starting to peel away the layers of psychology in terms of flow states and being in the zone. And that is something that athletes, we call it being in the zone or a subject that we talk about a lot or athletes would refer to for decades right now. The term flow states is a really new uh, term that's coming to being. But what we're talking about is the emergence of the physiological and psychological parts of the human body to achieve that beautiful state of bliss when someone's operating in a high-performance environment. So I started peeling away the layers and working at that. And throughout this entire time, I also made another interesting detour. For the first 15 years of my life, Ariana, I worked on peak performance using supplementation and technology, right? And as the world progressed, I realized that we can't trust the sources of the supplementation that we're getting. You don't know who's making it. You don't know where it's coming from. You have no idea. So I embarked and I was already deep. This had been a decade of studying ancestral wisdom, Vedic wisdom. And I realized that, you know, Vedic wisdom speaks of the five elements, which is earth, fire, air, space, and water. I was wondering, can I achieve the same peak performance states by using only the five elements? And mm. that's really and truly been my journey over the last five to six years now, was and looking the- how I can maximize these elements to bring about peak performance states 
in athletes? How do I make them superhuman using only what is naturally available on the planet? Superhumanize. I want to delve into the specifics of these five elements, how you also describe it in the book, how to apply that to your life in order to achieve peak performance. I think that's be that's going to be very, very valuable to our audience. Um, I'd like to backtrack a little bit, though. Your experience in the monastery, that's something very unusual. It was a 180-degree turn from the life you previously lived. I can only imagine, once you came to the realization that what you were doing prior, even though you were highly accomplished and, you know, training peak performers in, in South Africa, realizing this, this unjust, dysfunctional racist system just gave very limited opportunity. I can imagine as a human being, one would feel not only disappointed, but also anger. How did you deal with all the emotions that came up and what was the biggest takeaway for you out of your monastic life? The first lesson that I realized was humility in the temple. There's a little saying or a shloka that I have tattooed on my arm, starts with a Sanskrit word called Trinad Apisunachina, but the explanation of it is really be as humble as a blade of grass and be more tolerant than a tree. So the first thing they teach you in the temple is humility. Humility is the bedrock of learning. Only when you're humble can you be open to learn from anyone and everyone And that has really been the cornerstone of my growth. I am like a sponge. I will learn from anybody and everybody that I can learn anything from. So that was really the first interesting principle. And you're right. I went into the temple, a very angry person. And what it taught me was that when you look at an outcome that you want, when you accept an unfavorable outcome, people call you tolerant. When you can't accept an unfavorable outcome, it becomes anger. And I noticed that some people were angry, but more people were tolerant in the temple. And I asked myself, what is tolerance? How can you be tolerant of the situation? How could you be tolerant of this pain? Tolerance is really and truly being able to accept an unfavorable outcome or an unfavorable uncertainty. When you can't accept something that's uncertain or you can't accept something that's unfavorable, it will manifest as anger. That was another powerful little lesson that I, that I learned in the temple. So how do you actually do that, though? Because you're touching upon something that I think is really crucial to many people. The times that we're going through right now, uncertain times, things getting thrown at us that we never expected. How do you overcome this emotional pain and anger? The only way to become tolerant of an unfavorable situation is if the people you are surrounded by are wise, grounded, and humble. That is the only way. If you are in an ecosystem of people who are angry, who are violent, who jump to conclusions, who are unempathetic, you are a victim of that. The only way you can look at an unfavorable outcome with tolerance and patience is if the ecosystem you're in, and that is the people that you're surrounded by, embody these emotions of humility, of patience, of tolerance. You're a direct byproduct of the people you're surrounded by. And that's the only way. So in this current situation that we're looking at, COVID-19, the five people you surrounded yourself by 
We've heard that saying from sociologists to neurobiologists to neuroscientists to even motivational coaches and lecturers all say the same thing, that there is no nothing more important than that right now. If you want to get through this situation with your mental faculties intact, you have to be exceptionally mindful of the people you are surrounded by and the people that are providing you guidance and wisdom during this time. But there was something else that's interesting. When I was in the temple, you're right, I was angry. I was uh, very depressed and very upset. And I was getting a lot of wisdom from a lot of wise people out there. And they always taught me to see that silver lining in the, any situation. And one of the silver linings that came out for me in the apartheid was that, you see, in a discrimination situation, and you'll see this anywhere in the world, the person who's discriminated against has to work 10 times harder than the other people to get the same opportunity. You see this everywhere. And what that's subconsciously doing is it's instilling a higher work ethic in you. So the byproduct of coming out of a discriminatory apartheid system for me was that it instilled a work ethic in me that was second to none. And combine that with grounding and humility to learn from anyone else, plus the tolerance to see or withstand an unfavorable outcome. I think I have the three pillars that would allow me to be successful in any ecosystem out there. And that's what I keep preaching to people. Humility, tolerance, and good social network are the three legs of a stool that can hold up any weight. Fantastic. And there's also a beautiful uh, quote of yours that I've read when I was researching you that really stuck in my brain. We must learn to starve our fears and feed our courage in our quest to cultivate excellence. And fear is, of course, uh, one of the other big boogeyman we are facing right now uh, with regards to uncertainty. How do you personally deal with fear and managing fear? So I'm currently going through a very beautiful process right now where I'm trying to surrender to every single emotion that I feel. And I'm working with all of this. And the Stoics say it well, isn't it? They say, challenge your fears and your fears won't exist. Even in the scriptures, I remember reading a Japanese story of this big giant that was outside a castle that used to frighten everybody. And it demanded that one person walk towards it. And that was the sacrifice that that village had to give to that giant every single day until an unknown person arrived there and decided to challenge it. And it ran towards it. And every time it got closer, the giant shrunk and shrunk. And the giant was a metaphorical representation of our fear, where when you run towards it, it rarely shrinks. Or when you challenge it, it rarely shrinks. But that's easier said than done for most people. What needs to happen to challenge fear is most people need to rationalize the situation, isn't it? Because how does fear even come in, firstly? You remember, fear is a subconscious trigger from a past pain that you've had. I was talking to a very close friend of myself yesterday, and I was explaining to him, it's, a, it's like an infinity loop that keeps going, and it works something like this. You come up with an idea and you think, oh my God, that's a great idea. Let's go and do this. And then you start sliding down that loop. And then midway down, when you're sliding into that loop, the subconscious mind says, hey, hold on. 
you're thinking about the positive, but there's also negative in there. That negative is the subconscious fear that comes in, and it's reminding you of the time something didn't work well. Now, if you sit with fear for long enough, the subconscious mind will add a multiplier effect to your fear. So the longer you sit with fear, the more narratives it will manifest as to why you shouldn't do that. So that's what happens, isn't it? Now, you got to arrest that. And the only way to really arrest that is by either having someone who can bring in external guidance to help switch what could be a perception of reality and reality, help you ascertain the gap between those two, or you rationally look at the options between A and B. But one interesting way is that sometimes when you perceive all of the options, right, you realize that what I'm fearful of is really and truly not the most important option or not the option that could impact me the deepest. And that's when you really dig in and you find a little bit of courage to challenge that fear in some shape and form. But fear inadvertently is a subconscious program of a pain that happened in the past that we hid away and refuse to address. Mm. And until we don't put the spotlight on it, it will manifest. And this is what people should be very mindful of. Fear starts off like fear in the subconscious mind. It goes through a multiplier effect in the subconscious mind. And by the time it manifests back into the conscious reality, it looks like procrastination. Superhumanize. Perception uh, manifests as reality in a biological way. The more we have our mind, uh, you know, focus on fears and our brain, our thought, you know, regurgitating fears, it actually becomes a biological reality because the synaptic connections we form get strengthened and strengthened and strengthened over time. And it's going to become much harder to let go of this type of wiring. So it's really important what you said right now and shared with us, you know, to really become aware of our programming and try to stop it in the tracks. You know, for you, there's so many different experiences that are informing your life. And, and, and I love how you bring this all together from the psychology to living in a monastery, uh, the sports and science background. And of course, today, you're very, very much uh, immersed in, in all the new technologies as well that can help us optimize uh, the functioning of our brain and body. How does your daily routine look like? You know, my day generally starts pretty early and it starts with uh, some meditation and some breath work. You know, for the first half of the day, right up until about 12 o'clock, that time's reserved for myself. So I'm doing a lot of breath work. I'm generally fasting and it's not through an intermittent fasting practice. I just believe that I get my cognitive faculties. I'm able to journal better. I'm able to sit with my thoughts a lot more uh, if I don't eat anything. So I start with meditation, breath work. I do a little bit of journaling. When I'm doing journaling, I, I generally sip on a little bit of cacao, raw cacao, because I really feel that it's a, it's a beautiful superfood that really helps me connect to my emotions and I can feel, feel them beautifully. I spend about 45 minutes to an hour at least writing and journaling and gathering my thoughts and everything. I do a little bit of reading or a little bit of 
listening to some podcast or something like that. Uh, currently, I'm enjoying a lot of Adam Grant's and uh, Malcolm Gladwell's work. So I either listen to a little bit of that or I'll read for about 30 to 40 minutes. And this would get me all the way up to about 11, 30, 12. Only at 12 would I start picking up the phone, looking at emails, uh, answering that. I'd set any meetings or any consultations, coachings, or patients would only see me after 12 o'clock. And I try to spend at least, you know, only about four to five hours a day engaging too much with the outside world from a work point of view. I reserve a lot of my energy and, uh, and I spend a lot of that energy in really trying to deepen my practices in spirituality. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in peeling away certain emotions and trying to understand it because we know this, isn't we know that it's through solitude if you sit long enough with something that you really get some beautiful realizations from there. For example, I'm, I'm operating on a certain theory, which I'm testing out right now, is that if you sit with something for long enough, it will really teach you everything it needs to teach you. Everything that you need to learn in the world, you'll learn it through just observing any single object or moment long enough. So I'm experimenting on two different things right now. I'm experimenting at watching a single leaf grow on a plant at home and watching the ocean from the exact same spot at the exact same time every single day. And uh, it's been a really interesting and beautiful experience. And just in sitting in there and just watching how it's folding, there's so much of wisdom you can learn from the natural unhindered way in which things either destruct or evolve. And the reason I'm trying to sit with this is because I think there's a very strong parallel between how things should destruct and evolve within our own neurobiology and biology itself. So because I'm on this path of hacking the body using only ancestral natural wisdom, I think understanding the functioning on a more uh, physiological level or philosophical level as well would help me a lot than going into deep, deep science. What you're just talking about, of course, it's removed from most people's realities, sadly, to actually spend time and observe nature. We're all so distracted. You know, we all hop from one thing to the next, sometimes within seconds in our brains to actually be able to focus on that. I agree with you. We can learn so much. And the indigenous tribes of the Amazon, for example, a lot of their shamans, they say that it is by observing and communing with with nature that they get their wisdom and you hear that all across the world and our you know modern society of course has completely lost touch with that absolutely even in uh, vedic wisdom they say you know the ancient yogis could walk past trees and just gently touch a tree and they would be able to understand and observe the knowledge of that tree, knowing which plants actually have healing properties for, for what, you know, people have never really understood how is it that we've discovered what vine can do what we hear certain stories, but there are thousands of healing herbs out there. 
Have we ever questioned how that came into being? Who was the first person that discovered it? Well, that's how yogis discovered it. It was mm-hmm. so in tune with their body and in nature that they communicated with each other in a beautiful manner. And I, you know, I think uh, there's a beautiful book called The Secret Like for Trees. I think it's Christopher Bird who talks about the extrasensory perception that we seem to have lost through communication that plants have and all other living organisms have. They communicate with this extrasensory sort of knowledge that exists. And we refer to that as super consciousness. But really and truly, it's our consciousness right now that's there. And I mean, we've seen beautiful movies. They they would come across as sci-fi movies where you find someone who has lost a sense, has a supernatural ability with another sense. That's not that's not sci-fi. That's just reality. That's reality. When we block out a certain sense, you will have a certain heightened sense somewhere else. And that other sense that we don't talk about is that extrasensory perception to be able to tap into certain people's energy and flow. And we're awakening to this, Ariana, which is really beautiful. People are starting to understand this and become aware of it, which is beautiful. I agree. And uh, what you just shared about the yogis, there's uh, what I mentioned about the indigenous people of the um, Amazon. There's a beautiful book by Jeremy Narby, an anthropologist. It's called The Cosmic Serpent, in which he explains, he shares his experience of going to the Amazon, you know, of course, with his Western mind, skeptic, and then actually witnessing and experiencing himself how these plants this vast intelligence around us in us you know this is all one intelligence how it actually communicates with us and this is exactly how these incredible huge non-written down but kept in the minds and passed on through generations libraries of knowledge have been shared through the generations of these indigenous people you know how would you know out of tens of thousands of plants which two to combine to create a brew that uh, not only heals the body but also the mind (laughs) yes and i love that you are bringing in the ancient vedic wisdom and you've moved away from supplements but to a natural way of enhancing the body and the mind and we've touched upon it before Uh, in your book you also describe it very well the use of the five elements earth fire space air and water i would love to hear a little bit more about that yeah so you know those are the natural occurring supplements or elements that they are and we can tap into them beautifully so vedic wisdom speaks about a few things and i'll break it down for you in water vedic wisdom says drinking is not the best way to hydrate the body it's eating plant uh water-rich foods water-rich plants And they recommend that 60% of your hydration comes from eating water-rich vegetables and plants and fruit. Okay, So that's the first interesting thing that came out. The second element was sun, and it talks about absorbing energy from the sun. And obviously, we know about sunbathing, and sun gazing is another yogic science where you gaze at the rising and the setting sun to be able to absorb that energy from there. And it's a practice that's still very, very common in India. A lot of people still practice sun gazing to absorb Roman uh, D from the sun. In the Western world, we talk about just literally just sunbathing. But even that, we look at putting in sunscreens and layers which sort of prevent that. 
Another interesting thing is we look at the plants and how do we eat sun-ripened food. So, you know, we know about a few vegetables like tomatoes and stuff like that are sun-ripened. But Vedic science talks about leaving all of your vegetables out in the sun for about 45 minutes before you gently cook it. You're literally just lightly sauteed because that energy is still in there. So you cook it not from your fridge where it's been frozen. You cook it out of the sun. And obviously in the sun, it's going to wilt a little bit, but that's nothing's wrong with that. It's lost a little bit of water, but it's absorbed a lot of energy. So that's a beautiful way in getting in the energy from the sun in. Obviously, breath work is very, very key. And that practice is getting a lot of popularity. We've got Wum Hof and Neeraj Naik and so many others talking about holotropic and uh, rebirth breathing. So pranayama is really the science of breath work that balances the energies. But in pranayama, they speak of something really interesting, which no breathwork practitioner is actually talking about, that breathwork in Vedic science is prescribed in accordance with your three energy types. So we call these doshas, and people are either vata, they kapha, or they pitta, and these are three types of energies that you have. So you have a lot of earth, a lot of air, a lot of fire in you, or you have these combinations of these. And the breathwork types are prescribed in accordance with your type of energy that you have. Now, you got, you know, the rebirthing and you got the holotropic breathwork coming in and you got Wim Hof's breathing technique and you got all of these. None of these people are saying, hey, you know what? These breathing techniques are applicable to only a certain energy type. We're giving a general prescription to everyone. It's like really walking out and giving Xanax to everybody who says that we have certain <laughs> symptoms. That's exactly what we've done. And what we've not understood is that pranayama, the science of breath work, they have an encyclopedia of thousands of different breathing techniques. And a few people have just clicked out one leaf from that entire book and made that a generalized prescription right out there. But Vedic science, when we look at air, we refer to it as pranayama. Space is referred to as fasting. Okay, Fasting is incidentally the only common practice amongst every single religion in the world. Every single religion or practice in the world, faith-based practice, has fasting at its core and at its center. And the reason it has that is because fasting is prescribed to be one of the most or one of the best detoxification and elimination techniques for the body to clean itself. And here's something really beautiful. Okay, Western medicine says when you're sick, eat food. And when you eat food, your body will produce energy and you need that energy to heal the body. Vedic sciences says that when you're sick, there is a reason why your appetite is suppressed and you don't feel like eating, right? It's because the body wants to redirect all energy into healing the body. That is the reason why your natural appetite is completely suppressed. And once you heal, your appetite picks up again. You cannot force feed yourself because the energy in your body is limited. And now you're using that to burn food up, which is wasted energy when it needs it to really heal the body. So Vedic sciences talks about whenever you're ill, fast. It also says very interestingly, never eat when you're angry. It says because the anger, the emotion 
gets infiltrated into your cell biology through your food. Right. So never eat when you're angry. So the two times Vedic sciences will tell you to never eat is when you are angry and when you are sick. But Western medicine is completely counterintuitive to this. The last element is earth. And earth is eating plant-based foods. And it tells you eat as much food that comes from the earth. Eat whole foods that are plant-based. Eat your grains that are coming from there. In India, I've been working with some experts who have been studying at least 50 types of millets or indigenous grains that have completely been lost because of industrialization and capitalism. So remember, rice, wheat, and corn are industrial grains. They came into us into existence because of industrialization. And these three grains are behind the root cause of most of our illnesses. You're looking at diabetes, you're looking at chronic inflammation, you're looking at gut health issues, you're looking at whatever, cardiac disease, everything is coming in from here. You add on top of that is iodized salt. Iodized salt is also an industrialized product. Natural pink kamalian or rock salts would not increase your blood pressure. They would not bring about certain cardiac complications. So Vedic wisdom has got so much packed into it that we constantly ignore it. And it was industrialization and capitalism that turned our eye to this. And what I'm trying to do is work with experts, bring this research back into mainstream and really align it with our normal way of living because it's really and truly the secret to longevity. Superhumanize. I love what you're saying there, and I love that you're so passionate about this. And just this one thing you mentioned about, you know, to not eat when you're angry. I mean, uh, transfer that to any type of negative emotion, anger, sadness, fear. And you look, especially in our industrialized nations, we don't eat when we're happy and relaxed, even when you're just rushed or stressed. I would bet that most of the times when most people eat, they are not in a relaxed state of mind, but they have some kind of negative emotion impacting the time when they eat. And just imagine what that's doing to the bodies. Um, I, you know, I grew up the first, uh, I spent from four years to eight years old. I actually uh, lived in India. My father worked for the diplomatic service. So uh, I spent a few years in New Delhi as a little girl. And um, a lot of the beautiful Indian traditions from, you know, uh, philosophies, food, yoga, I've been doing yoga since I've been four years old, have just stayed with me my entire life. I, I really feel like you also just said before, we're at the precipice of a great awakening for humanity. There's many, many people who are uh, growing into their full potential, thinking out of the box, breaking the constraints and the paradigms that have kept us in a sick, diseased place, also affecting the way we deal with each other and the planet. As far as bringing you know, the Vedic knowledge and traditions back into the mainstream, what are you currently working on? I'm really spending a lot of my energy in trying to present another theory to flow states. And the theory that I'm presenting to flow states, so most people are familiar with the work of Setsik Mihaly and Stephen Kotler. And Stephen Kotler and Setsik Mihaly talk about a few things. They talk about really pushing the body 4% harder than normal. And what they're saying is that when you push your 
44% harder than normal, you will your focus will be narrowed. And when your focus will be narrowed, your attention is greater and you'll be able to sort of navigate certain variables around that. Uh, they also talk a lot about the automation of skill. And they say flow is a directly is a relationship where you're getting uh, instantaneous feedback that helps you move and navigate certain variables. And that's very interesting. And I've studied a lot and I've read a lot of their work. But my theory around flow states is a little bit different. The first thing is we all agree that flow state is a psychological state of being. Okay. And it's not a physiological state of being, even though we attain it through physiology. Now, what I was trying to tell people is that in my experience with sport, there are a few prerequisites between getting into flow and everyone needs to get do these before. The first prerequisite is that if I'm talking in a sporting context, when a person's in competition or when a person happens to or wants to get into a state of flow, they need to be operating at a submaximal physiological level. Submaximal means you can't be going, whatever you're doing can't be tapping you out physiologically close to 100%. It can't even be tapping you past your lactic acid threshold. Why? Because past your lactic acid threshold, the body is fatiguing. And we know that when the body is physiologically tapped out, the first faculty that's compromised is psychology. Your awareness is gone. Your attention span is gone. Your ability to perceive threats is diminished. We know this. There's a significant amount of research. So the first variable is a person needs to be fit enough or have a body healthy, healthy enough to perform submaximally in a flow state. The second variable is the automation of skill. So how hard do you practice to transfer the significant amount of your natural skill into the subconscious automatic part of your brain. Okay. And only when these two are in there, can we tap into flow and flow for me is the human brain using its subconscious automatic filters right, to tap into superconscious knowledge. And the reason I say this is because in a state of flow, you are navigating external variables faster than the human brain can perform, faster than the neurological feedback loop between muscle to brain, right? You're downloading information in a manner that you can easily process it and understand it. And for me, it's the subconscious automation of skills the more mastery you have in your subconscious automation, the greater your filter levels are for superconscious information. This is where it gets interesting for me. Downloading that superconscious information is one thing. Listening to it is the second thing. And listening to it is intuition. So for me, flow states are only achievable by a person who trusts the voice that's talking to them in a high-performance state. And that intuition can be quantified, in my opinion. So that's what I work on. I work on helping professional athletes who have physiological box ticked off, who have the perfect mastery ticked off, who have a significant portion of their 
automation already reprogrammed in their subconscious mind, which means even in their sleep, they can perform better than 99% of the population out there. My job is to get them to understand the strength of their intuition, that voice that they need to trust in a completely high-pressure situation. Superhumanize. Fascinating. This also sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are some elements of, you know, the, the suboptimal, slightly suboptimal performance ease and play uh, yeah. in there. And, and this, this trust, this listening to our intuition, which so many of us have lost because the brain chatter gets in the way instead yeah. of just going with this innate wisdom that really knows truly knows so much more than our brain could ever grasp. How do you actually break through, especially with peak performers who have to be in top form? You know, there's a lot at risk, uh, you know, winning, losing their careers, their reputations. How do you move these types of people past the fear of uh, listening to their intuition? It starts with data, isn't it? And that's what I'm doing. So I'm collaborating I'm creating what's called an intuition score. And I'll give you an example of how this works. Let's hypothetically say I'm with a golfer and he's doing a practice round. So I'm quantifying data during practice because technology and the restrictions of play in competition prevent me from really getting uh, biofeedback or getting feedback from athletes in real time where they're talking to me. So a lot of the data I get is in practice, which we then superimpose into competition. So let me use... A, an example like golf or an example like tennis, either one. So let's take golf, for example, where uh, an athlete's walking or a player's walking down the golf course and I'm standing right next to him. And, you know, when he has a, when he's lining up to play a shot or tee off, okay, you know, every time he gets a little voice saying, hey, I should do this. I should go here. I should go there. I should hit the draw, hit the fade, pick this club, this lie angle. I should take on this bunker. I should take on this green. Every time he says that, I make a note of that. And then two things can happen. One is he can either listen to that voice or not listen to that voice. If he doesn't listen to that voice, then that data point is gone. I mean, I make a note of it that he didn't listen to it and he did it. But if he did listen to it, then I start quantifying how often that voice led him down the right path. And then we start capturing data there. And then I start looking at it in five levels of importance. Okay. So I start looking at it when, okay, your voice is talking to you. It's suggesting something. I'm listening to it, but the outcome doesn't really matter. You know, it's not important. I'm just going to trust it. And the most important is when it's do or die situation. Are you listening to it? And there's an intuition strength at different levels of importance, right? The rational mind will suppress your inner voice at different levels of stress and importance. And we can quantify cortisol levels and we can map that to level of importance as well. There's a direct relationship between that. So sometimes I do that. Sometimes I look at the cortisol levels and how that mapped up to what they perceive as important. And if you do this for long enough, you start getting an interesting data point. You start getting what's called an intuition score. Okay. Yes. And then I start showing this data to them. And I say, listen, man, you know, more often than not, if you don't let the rational mind interfere in this, right, 
80% of the time or 70% of the time when you do this, it's working out good for you. You just mentioned that there's different levels of suppression depending um, uh, on the the amount of danger perceived, uh, the amount of risk perceived. So Correct. when does the intuition actually break through best? When do we actually listen to it most of the time? Is it in a more stressful, even like a life or death situation, or is it in a less stressful situation? What's your experience? Most people will listen to the intuition when in a very, very low risk situation when they have nothing to lose. Mm. It's like an option or I'll try it out. And if it works out in their favor, they even brush it under the carpet and completely forget about it. They forget that that was a reference point to listen to that voice at a higher stress situation. But this is where it gets interesting is that real game changers, real, real, real game changers are people who listen to the voice in the highest pressure situation because the best athletes in the world perceive pressure as a privilege. The reason I'm saying this is because only when a game, in any game, in any sport, only when it comes down to the last point or the last shot or the last kick in the last second, right, It's like the spotlight's on that moment and the world has come to a metaphorical standstill. That is an opportunity for you to leapfrog your growth. Okay, that's a high pressure situation. Now, there's certain athletes in the world, you see this, and I mention this to people and people think I'm crazy, but among special, special athletes, right, they play the game into that situation. They can win early or they could lose early, but mm. they take it right to the tinkering. Why? Because they thrive in that pressure because the win or loss doesn't matter, but the potential gain at that moment in time cannot be quantified. So you'll find this in so many situations where an athlete will walk into a situation and he'll play a game into a position that only he can win it from. Right. So learning how to function under pressure and at the same time learning how to trust your intuition sounds to me like our two major pillars of truly upping your game and your performance. And talking about game changing, you mentioned it before, some of the practices that you have that are very important to you in your life from uh, taking a really good amount of time until 12 p.m. for yourself, journaling, drinking cacao. I always ask my guests on the podcast, what are some practices that have been truly transformative for them, spiritually, mentally, or physically? Are there some other practices you could share with us? I mean, the main practice that has been the, that's had the biggest impact in my life. I mean, the practice I've been doing the longest is chanting, you know, because I was in the temple for almost 20 years ago. So chanting has stayed with me. But the practice that's had the biggest significance is uh, really journaling. Because what journaling does is it creates, it associates the disassociated clutter in your brain. When you force yourself to put something down on paper, you have to put it in a way that it makes cognitive rational sense to anyone who's reading it, including yourself. I, I keep telling people, I said, something in your head is jumbled up. Have you ever tried, and you should try this exercise, try to write a paragraph that makes absolutely no sense and see how hard it is. 
It's impossible. It is impossible to write a paragraph that makes no sense to you and everyone else. Sometimes you could write a paragraph that makes sense to you, but doesn't make sense to anyone else. But try to consciously write a paragraph that makes absolutely no sense to you. It's impossible. <laughs> so the practice of journaling is a practice that, you know, categorizes and declutters every emotion, every thought, every idea that you have. And then another secret that I do is when I have ideas and I journal, I pack them away and I revisit them systematically every week for about four to six weeks to see whether that idea is still sitting in me or still sitting with me in the same manner. That's how I acid test my ideas. Excellent. Really, really great advice. A lot of wisdom, what you shared with us, a lot of experience, quantifiable tools. You share a lot more and a lot more in depth also in your book, Breathe, Believe, and Balance. It's really a treasure chest for anyone who wants to optimize their performance. And anyone who would like to learn more about you, Shamal, or get in touch, how can they do so? Yes, you can uh, check me out on Instagram. It's Shamal, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L. Or you can message me on Twitter. On Instagram, you'll find a link that takes you to my books, my products, my courses. My podcast is called Perishable Wisdom as well. So you can listen to some stuff there. And that's the easiest place to find me. Wonderful. And I really feel I, you know, my brain has expanded. You've, you've put my attention on a bunch of things that I wasn't even aware of, including the vast uh, knowledge of a breathing pranayama alone. And that, you know, one type of breath as a prescription for everyone is not the right thing to do. So I will be diving deep into a lot of the things that you've shared with us. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of your mind and all the wisdom you've accumulated. It's been truly a pleasure to talk to you, Shamal. Thank you so much, Ariana. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 